Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for coming tonight. My name is Nathaniel Miller. I am a fellow in the Humanities Research Fellowship Program here at NYU Abu Dhabi, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to this talk, Geniza in the Gulf, and to welcome our guests tonight, uh, Ben Althwaite and Mohammed Ahmed. I want to thank the Humanities Research Fellowship Program and the Abu Dhabi Institute, and Nahed and Alex and Raya and everybody else who has helped to make this talk possible. There are two parts to this larger, what we're calling the Geniza in the Gulf uh, series of events. The first part is the exhibit, which we just opened uh, earlier today, right outside, which I would invite you to go and have a look at if you have not had a chance yet. Um, and by way of introduction, that uh, exhibit is the, um, the result of a collaboration between the, the three of us, but it's really the brainchild of Mohammed here, who is in charge of a European Research Council funded um, uh, team uh, at Trinity College Dublin, which is examining the um, not very frequently considered presence of a large amount of Arabic poetry in the Cairo Geniza, which is usually thought of as a, uh, a Jewish collection. Um, and indeed, if you look at the uh, beautiful facsimiles that are out there and the posters, it is all in Hebrew, but that's actually almost entirely Judeo-Arabic. So it's the Hebrew script, but it is Arabic poetry. And if you um, know the uh, Hebrew alphabet, then you'll be able to read it as Arabic poetry. Um, our other guest is Ben Althwaite, who is the head of the Geniza Research Unit at Cambridge University Library, which is where the vast, vast uh, majority of the um, Geniza materials in the world are currently housed. And uh, if you don't know very much about those materials, you're about to learn much more. Uh, ben will be speaking first and telling us about the Geniza in general, and then we will hear from Hamid, who will be talking about the presence of Arabic poetry in the Geniza. And I can't wait to hear about it. Thank you guys very much. Are you going to be standing up? Or are you going to be um, I'm, I think I'm going to be walking around. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thanks very much, um, Nathan, and uh, thank you very much to the uh, um, well to New York University for hosting us so well, and everyone associated with this um, exhibition, and particularly to Mohammed, who's a sort of brainchild. One, it was to have this project to really dig into the potential of the Kyrgyzza, as, as Nathan said, uh, a, a collection more associated with Jewish studies, um, as to what it can really tell us about Arabic literature more generally. Um, but also to, to sort of take um, the Geniza on tour and to try and bring it to audiences who maybe haven't had the opportunity to see it before. Um, and we've done that through the use of super expensive facsimiles, um, which are hanging on the walls along with the posters out there. And uh, really quite, quite a, um, I mean, if you've seen the original fragments and you look at the facsimiles and if you put them side by side, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Um, they are really quite amazing. So what I'm going to do is, for the next uh, 25 minutes, I think, is just give an introduction to the broad sort of nature of what the Geniza is and why it's important um, 
and uh, why you know as many people as possible should know about it. And then Mohammed um, is going to take over and, and talk in some more detail about poetry um, and uh, about the project in particular. But I'm going to kind of assume that um, not so many people are, are familiar um, with the Kairaganisa, and so I'm going to begin at the beginning, but not spend too long um, talking about Solomon Schechter. Actually, I wonder where I might sit down just for a moment. Um, now, it is Cambridge's um, blessing and curse to have so many great collections gathered from around the world. Um, and in some cases, those were acquired entirely legally, ethically, and, you know, um, we can have no moral or, uh, or ethical qualms about owning them. In other cases, um, they were, you know, uh, in the case of, for instance, some of our Ethiopian collections um, or our, our collections from Nepal, um, you can still see bloodstains on some of the manuscripts. Now, the Karaganiza sits, um, uh, falls in between those two. Um, it was a collection entirely acquired uh, really by the initiative of one man, Solomon Schechter, pictured here, um, with his head in his hands as he realized, oh, what have I done? Um, on the other hand, were he to be active today, collecting, uh, uh, you know, going abroad to collect um, the material as he did, it's unlikely that he would have been able to return with what he brought because it was a, a, a peculiar... Um, a chain of circumstances that led Solomon Schechter to um, bring the collection to Cambridge. Um, it, he was very fortunate. Uh, the political situation was um, conducive um, to Cambridge acquiring the manuscripts because they were acquired from Egypt at the end of the 19th century when Britain was taken over from France in running Egypt. Um, and there was also a uh, feeling in the Jewish community of Egypt at that time who generously gave the collection to Solomon Schechter, that the material would be more safe in a Western institution. And so they were quite happy for him to take it away. And, uh, you know, if, if, if that was the whole story, that would be fine. The problem, as far as Cambridge is concerned, is that the collection then sat um, from the end of the 19th century until really the 1960s, almost undisturbed and unloved in Cambridge because it was very difficult material in a university that wasn't used to reading this kind of material, and a university that didn't have a great connection with Jewish studies. Um, and so the boxes that you see the collection sitting in there, um, in the 1960s, my, my predecessor, at the end of the 1960s, beginning of the 1970s, my predecessor, who was the, the first head of the Geniza Research Unit, when he arrived to take up his post, he found the collection still in those same boxes as it had been shipped back from Egypt in. And so one of the reasons why we're kind of doing intensive work now on the collection, and especially in the last 10, 20 years, is because we're making up for lost time. The collection was gathered from Egypt over 100 years ago, but it was neglected for a long period of time. So this picture is, was taken in 1898, is in Cambridge University Library, and this is Solomon Schechter, who was then um, a uh, lecturer in Jewish studies in Cambridge. Uh, Cambridge was a very much a Christian university. He was one of the few Jews teaching in the university. 
Um, and he, when he acquired the collection, it almost fell to him alone to make sense of it and to work on it, which is why you see this, this picture from, taken from a, you know, the room he was given in the old university library, surrounded by boxes of mouldering paper and parchment manuscripts, some of which dated from only a few years before he went to Egypt and carried it away. So in the 1890s, they were still putting things into this Geniza. Uh, which I'll explain in a moment. But some of the material in those boxes there dates um, from the 5th or 6th centuries CE. So there was material of over a 1,000 years old sitting in those boxes. Now, in its raw state, it looks like this. So when you think of manuscripts, you know, nowadays you might, might think of um, scrolls or of codices. Um, but when we talk about manuscripts in the Geniza, this is what we mean. It's fragments. It's bits of what were once loved and cherished books, but are now mere shadows of their former selves. And that's partly why the collection has been so difficult to work on, and why it's taken so long, because it's not in, uh, in the original form in which it was deposited into this chamber and taken away. Um, books, the whole point about the Geniza, which is a storeroom for manuscripts or books that cannot be used anymore, so they're too old to be used. The whole point of it is that the material is old already at the time it's put into it. And then if you look at it a thousand years later, it's in an even worse condition. So that's what the Geniza is, and that's why it's such a difficult collection to work on. Solomon Schefter himself wrote an article in the Times after he came back from Egypt when he brought the collection back with him, and he described it as a battlefield of books because it was all mixed up. And he said the literary productions of many centuries had their share in this battle like a massive jigsaw puzzle, tiny little bits of manuscript and fragment. Now, Schechter himself went to Egypt because in, again, a sort of remarkably um, serendipitous uh, occasion of, of which the Cairo Geniza story is, is, is full of these rare coincidences, is that two Scottish women who he happened to be friendly with in Cambridge who were extremely Christian and had traveled in the Middle East going to ancient monasteries to look at old Christian libraries had happened on one of their trips through, through Cairo to buy some manuscripts from a book dealer in the market. And on returning to Cambridge, they showed Solomon Schechter that manuscript there, which is a thousand years old and it's written on paper, so it's not that old. I mean, a thousand years, but it's not, you know, it's not like 2,000 years old. But Solomon Schechter, um, so excited by what he saw in it, wrote them this note. He wrote the Scottish uh, ladies this note saying, um, the piece that you showed me represents a piece of the original Hebrew of Ecclesiasticus. Ecclesiasticus is the Christian name of the book of Ben Sirah. He called it by the Christian name because he was writing to two Christian women who wouldn't know Ben Sirah. Um, and he concluded his letter with, in haste and great excitement, yours sincerely, S. Schechter. He was in haste and great excitement because he had been shown a manuscript that had not been seen for a thousand years. As far as he knew, the last person to ever read the Hebrew copy of the book of Ben Sirah was um, Haigaon, who lived in Iraq, who's a Jewish scholar in Iraq, in, who died in 1040. He was the last Jew to have written um, uh, a quotation from the book of Ben Sirah in Hebrew. The book was lost in Judaism after that. It existed in Greek versions and was used by the Christians. Um, the book was originally written in the second century BCE, but had been lost for the last thousand years. And Solomon Schechter, at home in Cambridge University, was shown you know, this missing thousand-year-old book by two Scottish friends 
on a kitchen on a dining room table in the middle of Cambridge. So he was in haste and great excitement because he was going to find his friend Charles Taylor to borrow money to go to Egypt to find out where this manuscript had come from and bring the rest of them um, back to Cambridge which is exactly what he did. He went to Egypt, he met the chief rabbi of Egypt. The chief rabbi said, yes, maybe these manuscripts that are being sold are coming from this old synagogue, which is in Al-Fustat, so in, in um, Misra Kadima, the, the, the oldest part of Cairo, um, in a synagogue that was known as the Kanisat Shami'in, the synagogue of the Palestinians or of the Syrians, so of the Jews who came from Palestine or Syria and it was in the oldest part of Fustat. And the chief rabbi of Egypt, um, who was charmed by Solomon Schechter, this, this sort of European, um, Romanian, in fact, Jew, um, they came to an agreement that he would make the trip down to Fustat with Solomon Schechter. He would show him this old synagogue and show him where these manuscripts were being stored. And in return, Solomon Schechter, who had money and transport, would take, take the chief rabbi of Egypt and show him the pyramids. Because the chief rabbi of Egypt had lived in Cairo his entire life and never seen the pyramids. Um, and so that's how it came about. So he was taken down to Fustat, so, so old Cairo, so, so you know, south of, of the center of modern Cairo, um, in what was originally known as the Fortress of Babylon. And you can see, you know, old Cairo was a very small city. Fustat was the original capital city, the Muslim capital city of Egypt. And Cairo was only founded um, by the Fatimids in the 10th century. So originally there was this walled fortress, which was the, um, the center. And uh, you can see where the Nile is to the left. Well, the Nile moves over time. It silts up and moves. So originally, if you look at the line of the, um, so here's Fustat, the fortress of Babylon, the old Fustat. Um, if you look at the line of the railway that runs right past it, that's where the Nile originally ran. So it originally ran outside the doors of Fustat. And in fact, Fustat was built, um, I mean, the, when, when um, um, Muslims conquered Egypt, they took Fustat as their capital because it was a f walled fortress that was originally a port that um, protected a canal that ran from the Nile to the Red Sea. And so it's the very center of Egypt in those days. And the synagogue where Schechter was shown was actually in the oldest part of Fustat. So this synagogue where these manuscripts were coming from was in the very oldest part of Islamic Fustat, right at the heart of the oldest part of the city. And um, we know from Geniza documents, from documents found, that there was more than one synagogue in Fustat because I mean, it's an old joke that, you know, in any Jewish community, there is always more than one synagogue. Um, and because they pray differently, there was a synagogue for the Shami'in, for the Syrian uh, Palestinian Jews, and there was a synagogue, you see, of Khanisat uh, um, al-Iraqi'in, a synagogue for the Iraqi Jews, so the Jewish immigrants from Babylon, from Iraq, who had arrived. When they arrived, they prayed differently to the Jews from Palestine, so they had to build their own synagogue. But they arrived later, and they built their synagogue under the near the, the edge of the, city, the old city of Fustat, um, under what is now a Christian church. And all around them, in the oldest heart of the city, were churches. All of these buildings and more besides are churches. So the oldest center of Fustat was, was, a, um, it was the capital of Muslim Egypt, uh, a, a majority Christian population, but with uh, at least two Jewish congregations who had been there for as long as anyone could remember. Now, Schechter went to the synagogue. The chief rabbi invited him 
to have a look at this hole in the wall, and uh, he was invited to jump through the hole into a chamber that was filled with manuscripts. And Schechter jumped through, and he landed on what he said were a thousand years of Jewish culture, and he felt it breaking beneath his feet. Um, and when he got back to Cambridge, um, he brought with him 200,000 manuscripts. And again, these are not books, these are pieces, but some of them are big pieces, some are small pieces, and so on. Um, and uh, when he got back, he wrote an article in the Times called A Horde of Hebrew Manuscripts. And in it, he explained what a Geniza was, and it's still one of the best explanations of what a Geniza is. Um, he says, when applied to books, it means much the same thing as burial means in the case of men. When the spirit is gone, we put the corpse out of sight, in like matter, manner, when the writing is worn out, we hide the book to preserve it from profanation. So when a holy book can no longer be used, you don't burn it, you don't throw it away, you have to put it carefully away so somebody can't take it and misuse it. And that's what a Geniza chamber is. It's a storeroom for holy books. And all religions have storerooms for holy books like this. Um, but in Judaism, they seem to have taken it very, very seriously in Fustat because they continued storing away their holy books for a thousand years. Because when Schechter arrived in the 1890s, they were still using that room to put manuscripts into it. Well, printed books by that stage. Now, there are laws in Judaism that explain why they do this. And if you look at the um, Mishnah on Shabbat, so this is a Jewish, the Jewish book of law written down in the second century CE, they say that on the Sabbath, so on the Sabbath you have to rest because God rested when he created the world. And on the Sabbath Jews must rest too. They're not allowed to do any work, but there are exceptions. And one of those exceptions is that if you can save life, you must save a life on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to say, I'm resting. I'm not going to pull you out of that pit, which is one of the examples they give. Now, in the same way, they say on the Sabbath, you can also break the laws of the Sabbath if you have to rescue kol kitve kodesh, any holy books. You should save them from being destroyed, whether you read them or not. So it doesn't necessarily even mean it has to be holy to you. And in no matter what language it is. So it doesn't matter whether it's in Hebrew or Arabic or Greek. If it's holy and it mentions God, then you should save it, even on the day of rest. And it says you should hide it away according to the custom of Geniza, which is Geniza, this Geniza chamber that you put it into. And so when Schechter brought these materials back to Cambridge, he was not surprised to find that it was full of holy books and very old ones, because people tend to keep holy books for a long time before they eventually fall apart, and then they put them into, a, into this storeroom. And so we have many copies of the Bible, like the two manuscripts on the left, a big, great Bible produced in the 10th or 11th century, which, as you can see, is now a shadow of its former self, but you know, originally was a very expensive book, because each of those double leaves is you know, it's made of sheepskin. And so if you think there are 400, 500 pages like that in a Bible, that's you know, 250 sheep have given their lives to make that book very expensive book. You would keep it a long time, but at a certain point, it, you know, it can no longer be used, so you put it into the Geniza. Down below it is a much smaller book, which if you didn't see it was written in Hebrew, you might say it was a Quran written in the Abbasid era, because it looks like a Quran, because Jews did not adopt the book, the Codex, uh, until long after um, uh, every other culture had adopted the book. Because in Jews' eyes, originally, in the Jewish religion's eyes, the thing that separated them from Christianity was that Jews used scrolls and the Christians adopted the book. It's a kind of simplification, but it's actually more or less true. And when Islam arrived, 
And the Jews of the Middle East saw that Muslims were happy to read their Quran from a book. That made them realize that the Jews could also adopt the book. It was no longer a Christian thing, and no longer just a Christian medium for reading scripture. And so Jews, in the earliest forms of the book that they used to write the Bible, they look like Qurans because they are basing it on the Muslim Quran, the way that they, they, they produced the book. And that one was actually written in Iran in 903, so more than a thousand years old, and it made its way all the way from Iran with a Jewish immigrant from um, Iraq, uh, Iran who traveled to North Africa, ended up in Cairo, and at some point the book fell apart and he put it into this storeroom for Solomon Schechter a thousand years later to come and take it away back to Cambridge. And then on the right you have um, a collection of um, legal writings, Halachar, the Sefer Halachot of Al-Fazi, um, so this was a handy compendium of Jewish law. And it's the nature of these books that, you know, I, they're very personal items. I can tell you all three, the names of the three scribes that wrote these. So the one on the rest written by a man called David because he writes his name in code on the page. The one on the bottom left is written by a man called Joseph from a certain town in Iran because he, he wrote a note saying, my name is Joseph ben Nimorad and I wrote this. And the one on the right, if you see the little sign in the margin on the right-hand side, that marks three letters in the margin that just have come the right-hand margin, Kaf Lamed Bet. So the scribe who's copying it wants us to know that his name is Kalev, because those three letters have turned up, maybe not by accident, at that point in the margin. He's marked them to show that that's his name. So the nature of these manuscripts is that we can actually reach out and touch the people who wrote them, even though there's 1,000 or 800 years between um, when they were written and now when we're reading them. It's, a, it's not like a sort of mass-produced era of printed material. Now, when they're putting these things into the Geniza chamber, they're doing because they are holy and they must preserve them. But it does seem that the Jews of Fustat had a very broad idea of what was holy. The Bible is obviously holy, prayer books, Sidorim, and so on. Anything with the name of God in it is holy. But also, Hebrew itself is the Lashon HaKodesh, the holy language. And so anything written in Hebrew perhaps becomes holy too. And so they put that into the Geniza chamber too. So this is a letter sent from a Jewish leader in um, Iraq, in, in Baghdad, sent to his, um, his co-religionists in North Africa. It's a fundraising letter because they relied on money from the diaspora from North Africa and Egypt to pay for the yeshiva, the, the sort of Jewish government that was in Baghdad under the Abbasids. And so this, this is a, a, an original letter that's sent all the way to North Africa, and it's written in Hebrew. And rather than throw it away, they have carefully put it into the Geniza. And it's dated from 960, so over a thousand years old, and it still has attached to it the bulla, the seal, um, that the Jewish leader was given the permission, the um, uh, Muslim authorities in, in Iraq gave the Jewish leaders permission to use a seal, much as the, um, the, uh, the, 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 the caliph did. And so this is, um, in fact, this is the only survival of a medieval Jewish seal has, some, has remained attached to this letter, which was then carefully deposited away. Now, there's nothing intrinsically holy about this, but it is written in the Hebrew language. And that extends also to the everyday writings, because if you read this, so this is, obviously you see it's written in Hebrew script, but if you read it, 
um, it's, it's written in Arabic. It's Arabic language as spoken or, or written by a Jew. But because he went to school and learned Hebrew when he was a child, when he comes to write his Arabic in, in, uh, in later life, he writes it in Judeo-Arabic, Arabic in Hebrew characters. And what this actually is, as it says, um, is, is expenditure for the holiday of Shavuot. This is actually his shopping list for a holiday feast. So he's going to the market to buy a bunch of stuff. And if you look at it, it includes um, kubeb, uh, uh, thum, um, uh, malochia, um, dajeja, dajeja limonia. Um, you know, it, 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 it's got onions, it's got garlic, it's got java pepper, chickens, small chickens, big chickens, lemon chipping. Um, and, um, and it's got what we call Jews mallow, malachia. And we were just the other night, we were just at an Egyptian restaurant eating exactly that. So from a thousand years ago, you know, the, the, on the, and this was a special celebration for us because it was an Egyptian restaurant for Mohammed. Um, you know, on a, on a special occasion, they also ate malachia. So even though that, is, that was written in, in the 12th or the 13th century, um, the kind of items that they are celebrating with are, are no different from what we might similarly eat today. And why would that be kept in the Geniza? Well, he does actually say at the beginning, he says, expenditure for the festival of Shavuot if I live that long with the help of God. Um, as in, you shouldn't plan ahead um, without making sure that, you know, that, um, that, that God will protect you. And this is the nature of shopping lists and so on, even in the Middle Ages, that they will say, you know, I am sending you to the market with um, three dirhams to buy something or other. If you don't bring me the change, God curse you. And in writing the word God in the document, does that make it holy? It could be, but it could just be that the fact is written in Hebrew characters. But what's the strange thing is, um, beyond that, um, so while something in Hebrew characters might be holy, something you know, invoking God might be holy, but also there's a lot of material in Arabic in the Kyrgyzah, some of it not even originally Jewish at all. So here we have a petition to a wazir of um, one of the late Fatimid caliphs uh, on the left-hand side. Now, why is this in the Geniza? It's a petition. It, it wasn't written by a Jew as far as we know, but... The Diwan in those days, the, the, the Islamic government, um, when they had finished with a document, they tended to sell it for scrap paper. And a member of the Jewish community has acquired this document, a very big petition, so nice widely spaced lines, and he's used it to write Hebrew poetry in between. And so the document's been reused, a bit like a palimpsest, and ended up back in the Geniza. Similarly, on the right-hand side, this is a petition that was addressed to Salah Hadin, um, and we know that he read it, or at least it was read to him, so the great Saladin, um, because on the back of it is the secretary's answer. And at some point, this document, once, once the case was, it, it, it's actually written by a Jew originally who wanted to eat a tax informer, and he wants Saladin to free him of this burden of informing on um, people who haven't paid the tax. Um, so he wrote this very lengthy, nice petition. Perhaps he, I mean, he almost certainly paid a scribe to write it before him. Um, and it was read to Salah Hadin, um, who gave the answer, no. Um, and, and at some point, that petition then had no value. And so it was sold or given away. And a Jew has written a calendar. Remember, the Jewish community has written a calendar on one side and then um, poetry on the back of it. Because paper, this is paper, um, paper is still an expensive writing material.
and they don't like to waste it. Now, sometimes we can't explain why things are there. On the left, this is a draft to Al-Mustansir, so the, the Fatimid Caliph, from a man whose son has been killed by, um, by a, a, a ship's captain who stole his money. And this was not a petition that was actually sent. This is just the draft. But it was written by a Jew. So even though it's in Arabic, it is a Jewish man, because he, he, his, his son was a Jewish merchant who was murdered on the Nile because he was carrying lots of money. Um, but they have carefully preserved the document in the Geniza. They haven't reused it for anything, and you'll see this one is on display outside. And because it's a draft, it's written in this quite difficult Arabic where it's hard to tell what they're writing. And on the right is a petition that was definitely sent. Um, so this was sent to Al-Adid, and, and it um, received that the answers on the back of it are from the two secretaries, of the secretary of the thin pen and the secretary of the thick pen. So the one who gave the quick answer, which is the thin pen, and then the one who added in all the titles of the judges and so on who have to be informed about this using the thick pen. So this is a genuine petition that went to you know, this wazir um, and somehow came back into the Jewish community and it didn't get thrown away. Even though it's got nothing intrinsically Jewish about it, it's not entirely clear why. Now, one of the sort of greatest um, survivals in the Karaganisa is the fact that we have the material of one of the great names of the Jewish Middle Ages preserved there. Again, for the sort of same kind of reason, we're not entirely clear why, but anything he writes is perhaps holy because he writes it in Hebrew characters. So this is Moses Maimonides, Musa ibn Maimun, um, the greatest Jewish philosopher of the Middle Ages, born in Spain, settled in Egypt, became the head of the Jewish community. And on the left is a letter written by him, and on the right is a book that we know he owned, written in Arabic. And how do we know he owned it? Because he wrote his name on the cover. And if you compare the signatures, you can see that's clearly his, his book. So he was reading, in this case, pseudo-Aristotle pseudo in Arabic, so he was reading Arabic script quite happily, but he was writing when he wrote his own letters, and again, this is on the left is in Arabic in Hebrew characters. Um, he was writing in Hebrew characters because he, even the greatest philosopher of Judaism, uh, of medieval Judaism, was happiest writing in, in, in Hebrew script, even though he obviously spoke and read Arabic very well. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to take too long and not leave Muhammad any time to speak, so I'm just going to race through that um, and just come on to um, looking in a little bit more detail about, um, about the literary stuff. So this is... Um, so Maimonides' greatest work of philosophy was the Dalalat al-Haririn, the Guide for the Perplexed, which most people nowadays, I mean, in the Jewish community, know in Hebrew, but it was only translated into Hebrew by Ibn Tibon in the Middle Ages. Um, and Maimonides wrote it in Arabic. It's, a, it's an Arabic philosophical work, but again, he was happiest writing it in Hebrew characters. Now, he also, when he copied his own, uh, for his own notes, he also wrote again in Hebrew characters. So Maimonides was a doctor as well as a philosopher, and he copied the works of Galen, because Galen was the main, one of the main um, medical authorities in those days for, for, for all of the um, Arabic-speaking population. And so when he copied his epitome of Galen, his copying out Galen's works, he copied an Arabic text, but copied it into Hebrew characters. And you see Kala Galenus there. So Galen says. And you can see how... But for the difference of language, Jews and Muslims are basically occupying the same intellectual world. So here, this is the most famous work for um, uh, eye doctors of the Middle Ages, the Tadkirat al-Kahalin, 
by um, Ali ibn Nisra. Um, and if you look at those two, they look, they look basically the same. And unlike most of the other manuscripts you've seen so far, they have red ink on them, because that's very common in scientific works. The one on the left is the original manuscript in Arabic script. The one on the right was obviously used by a Jewish doctor who was happier reading exactly the same book, but in Hebrew script. So it's still in Arabic, but it's in Hebrew script. But, but for the difference in script, it's exactly the same book, even presented in the same way. And similarly here, the other great medical work for general medicine was, was Ibn Sina's um, uh, Kanun. And here you can see two copies of the Kanun, both of them probably used by Jews, but we can't we'd never be sure in Leganisa how it ended up in that chamber. But the one on the left is in Arabic, and the one on the right is in Judeo-Arabic, Arabic and Hebrew characters. Again, presented exactly the same way from the, the chapter headings and the red ink and so on. It's purely a matter of script. And you can see that here in the literature that people chose to read. So here we have three different versions of Kalila Wadimna, one of the most popular animal fables, moral kind of stories of the Middle Ages, you know, came from, from the Indian subcontinent or Persia originally and then spread out. And here you can see a, you know, somebody very rich owned a beautiful copy with gold leaf on it. Somebody quite poor owned a, a not so good copy with a sort of not so good raven and rat on it and somebody in the middle who was happiest reading it in Hebrew script and not in Arabic at all. It's not in Hebrew, it's in Judeo-Arabic. Okay, so having moved on to literature, I'll pass on to Mohammed now. Thanks so much, Ben, for the interesting talk. Um, so uh, during my undergraduate studies, uh, back in 2002 in Mansoura University, my colleagues always complained about my bad voice in uh, reading and reciting Arabic poetry. Well, I have to read a lot of Arabic poetry today, I'm sorry, and uh, I trust, trust your kindness, and I wish you forgive me. We'll start with this nice one. يا من هواه أعزه وأذلني كيف السبيل إلى وصالك دلني وصلتني لما ملكت حشاشتي وأنبت من بعد الوصال هجرتني The fragment you are looking at uh, holds some verses from a popular poem attributed to معالي الشيخ أحمد ابن سعيد البوسعيدي who was the first ruler of Oman and one of the most prominent poets in the 18th century. Later, the poem was turned into a song which was so popular in the Gulf region and um, during the early 20th century. The most interesting thing about this poem particularly is that it was copied and transcribed into Hebrew script by a Jewish scribe in Ottoman period in Egypt. Similar to this poem, there are around 300 fragments in the Cairo Geniza that also hold Arabic poetry written in Hebrew script and have been kept for centuries unexplored. While many scholars have worked in the Hebrew poetry. 
in the Karaginiza with large collections collated in books and on websites. The Arabic material has been extremely neglected uh, with only few scholars who are working on the material, such as Dr. Rachel Hassoun from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Jerusalem. Uh, this project is an, an, an ERC-funded project uh, called Arabic Poetry in the Cairo Geniza. investigates for the first time an explored collection of Arabic poetry fragments. The core aim of the project is to make the entirety of this collection available to public audience and also to the uh, scholarship. The study of this collection, I believe, will open up new avenues of research of the social and cultural history of the Jewish community in medieval and Ottoman Egypt. Uh, and the collection is an equally important source to Arabic studies and Islamic studies too. I'm very interested in finding answer to these questions. For what reason um, Muslim poetry has been circulated within the Jewish community in Egypt? What can Geniza poetry or Arabic poetry found in the Geniza can tell us about history, cultural, and human experience of Jews in medieval and pre-modern Egypt? And how might Geniza poetry change our understanding of the history of Muslim-Jewish relations and interactions? To answer these questions, an innovative approach was needed. The Arabic poetry in the Cairo Geniza project is the first of its kind to bring together different linguistic, literary, and historical, and anthropological uh, studies, leading towards a cohesive understanding of the Arabic poetry in the Cairo Geniza. So what about the Arabic poetry uh, preserved in the Cairo Geniza? There is evidence of shared interest in poetry between Jews and Muslims from the 7th century onwards, which lasted through the ages until modern times. As Arabic speakers, Jews adopted this creative literary writing in the pre-Islamic period, and Arabized Jews began to compose poetry in Arabic in the pre-Islamic period. Uh, and some Jewish poets uh, of Arabia are fixtures of the Arabic tradition such as Asimaw al-Ibn Adiyah. The emergence of secular Hebrew poetry in, Andal in Andalus was a direct consequence of exposure to Arabic poetry. In addition to adding Hebrew poetry to the forms and patterns of Arabic uh, verses, some Jewish poets also wrote their poetry in, in the Arabic language. In some cases, this went hand in hand with conversion to Islam, such as Ibrahim ibn Sahl al-Israeli. But it was not necessarily so. Yehuda al-Harizi, a leading Jewish poet, translator, and um, writer from Toledo, not only translated Arabic poetry and rhyme prose, such as the Maqamat of uh, Hariri of Basra and compose his own Hebrew maqamat, the Tahakumuni, but also wrote poems in Arabic and even produced bilingual works in both 
languages, Arabic and Hebrew. So Jews in medieval Egypt were naturally familiar with Arabic literature. There is a considerable number of Arabic books that have been transcribed into Hebrew script in various genres. Examples of these Hebrew script can be found in copies of Muslim Arabic texts, uh, in astronomy, medicine, magic, astrology, and more. Many of these copies are only extant in the Geniza, while the original Arabic copies have been lost. Even the Quran, the holy book for Muslims, was transcribed into Hebrew too. So Arabic language Geniza fragments are more often written in Hebrew script, which is uh, the Judeo-Arabic, uh, as uh, my colleague Ben uh, showed us. And fewer in Arabic script. This also relates to Arabic poetry in the extant leaves. Poetry by various Fatimid authors um, can be found alongside earlier poems composed by Abbasid poets. So genres and poetic themes are valuable and wide-ranging in both sacred and secular themes, which including love poetry, ghazal, um, theology, uh, descriptive poetry, theology, uh, strophic poetic form, washah, and so on, and also folk poetry, like zajal. Some pieces are conserved in both Arabic and Hebrew scripts in one text. We can find eulogies for the three Abrahamic uh, faces and handbooks of um, uh, Arabic poetic meters, for instance. So, love poetry is a favorite of Arabic literature, as we know, and thus it's no surprise to see that many poems found in the Cairo Geniza are written within a love theme. The Geniza love poetry is written in different poetic styles and comes from various time periods. Take the, this example, for instance, uh, which is the most common poetic theme found in the collection so far. In this fragment, which contains a collection of Arabic short poems or pieces of Arabic poems, one can read a poem written by Ibn Abi Husayna, which reads, وَلَمَّا تَنَقْنَا لِلْوَدَاعِ وَقَلْبُهَا وَقَلْبِي يَفِيضَانِ الصَّبَابَةَ وَالْوَجْدَةَ بَكَتْ لُؤْلُؤًا رَطِبًا فَفَاضَتْ مَدَامِعِ عَقِيقًا فَصَارَ الْكُلُّ فِي نَحْرِهَا عِقْدًا Another piece of love poetry found in the fragment is very similar to a poem taken from one copy of the famous Arabic book Alf Layla wa Layla, uh, which reads, Shawqi ilayka ala zamani jadidu, wa dam'u yajrahu muqlati wa yazidu, hasama zamanu kama sa'a bi firaqina, inna al firaqa ala al muhibbi shadidu. And here is another piece of religious poetry reflecting Arabic invocation and prayer to Allah, which reads, Ya ilaha al alameen, ya waliya al mukramat. أنت عفو المذنبين بالضحى والذاريات رحم الخاط الحزين يوم يدني من لقاك. An example of a very popular Arabic poem used widely in the Islamic world is the poem attributed to Ali ibn Abi Talib the cousin of the Prophet Muhammad And it's interesting to note that a poem by a famous Islamic figure like Ali ibn Abi Talib was copied into GJ Arabic and read by Jews, which reads, uh, Don't be 
تنام عيناك والمظلوم مجتهدا يدعو عليك وعين الله لم تنمي Wisdom and philosophy themes have a place in many fragments in the Karogeniza. In this fragment we can see two Arabic poems that belong to Ibn Waqi'ah al-Tanisi. بقدر العلو يكون الهبوط فإياك والرتب العالية وكن في مكان إذا ما سقطت تقوم ورجليك في عافية وله لقد رضيت همتي بالخمول وحادت عن الرتب العالية وما جهلت طيب طعم العلا ولكنها تؤثر العافية and here is another beautiful example of love poetry. Again, belongs to the Abbasid poet Abu Firas al Hamdani, which reads Sakirtu min lahdihi la min mudamatihi, wa mala bin naumi an aini tamayuluhu, wa masulafu balani bal sawalifuhu, wa la shamulu balani bal shamayuluhu, alwa bi azmi asdarun luina lahu, wa gala sobri matahwi gala iluhu. So the fragment here shows one of the common features in medieval Arabic uh, or Judeo-Arabic poetry, which is the combination of Arabic and Hebrew scripts in one text. One can easily see Arabic headings um, introducing the, the, the poems while the poems are themselves are written in, in Hebrew script. Uh, so the verso of the fragment holds a poem written in Arabic script, possibly by the same scribe, which reads, ما إن هممت بوصل ما ما إن هممت بوصل غير يمر سوري ما إن هممت بوصل غير يمرة إلا بللت من الدموع جيوبا وظللت في غمرات حبك ساهما حتى لا يحسبني الجليس مريبا إني لا يمنعني هواك عن الهوى حتى كأن علي منك رقيبا. So this poem is found in the Arabic poetry database. However, it reads differently from the version in the fragment from the Cairo Geniza. Uh, and we can see here the differences in these two verses against what we saw in the um, Arabic database version. So the most important feature of the Arabic Geniza poetry presented here is verses, even complete parts of famous poems which have been only preserved in Judeo-Arabic fragments. The findings also suggest that the Geniza has preserved some Arabic poems in versions that are several hundred years older than the extant manuscripts from other collections, and therefore demonstrates how useful and vital the Cairo Geniza could be for the recovery of lost works, perhaps, or for more original versions. To give an example, this fragment here, which contains a poem that may belong to the Abbasid poet Khalid al-Katib, who was famous for his romantic Arabic poetry. The poem starts with two verses, and this is in the Diwan al-Katib in, in the Arabic database. The poem starts with two verses, which are almost the same as Khalid Al-Katib's poem found in the collection, in the um, Arabic Diwan, um, which reads, كلما اشتد خضوعي لجوا بين ضلوعي ركضت في حلبتي خدي خيل من دموعي. 
However, the rest of the poem in Hebrew script in the fragment is different from the Arabic version available to us. So the Judeo-Arabic poem is four verses long, which makes it two verses longer than the currently existing Arabic version. And the words used in the first two verses of the poem differ in the two versions too. So the poem's meter and rhythm, however, are the same in, in both versions, which are written in Arabic poetic meter, Majzu al-Ramal. The oldest Arabic manuscript we have of the Diwan by Khalid al-Katib is a copy dated to the year 19, sorry, 1698. And from the style of the Geniza fragment, in terms of its Arabic vocalization and the Hebrew script used, one can estimate that, the fra that this fragment is roughly dated to the 13th to 14th century. Um, this suggests that the poem found in the fragment could be the oldest extant version of Arabic poem um, attributed to the Abbasid poet Khalid al-Katib. So this is not the only case in which the Arabic poems found in the Geniza fragments differ from the Arabic poems available in Arabic poetry databases. The Arabic poetry in the Cairo Geniza project shows that other fragments in the Cairo Geniza collections reveal the same phenomena. This presentation, however, doesn't claim that the Arabic fragments provide more correct versions of Arabic poems than those in existing Arabic poetry sources, nor does it overestimate the quality of Arabic poetry in the Cairo Geniza, given the manner of mistakes in terms of grammar and uh, Arabic poetic meter, for instance. Um, it does, however, emphasize that the uh, importance of the Cairo Geniza as a perspective contributor to the diachronic and historical study of Arabic literature and Arabic poetry, and stresses the need for further studies of Arabic literature in the Cairo Geniza. So the last example I would like to uh, share with you today is this one. Uh, which begins with a poem by the Fatimid poet Abu Al-Ala Al-Ma'arri, which reads, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim yakun akbar li-Abi Al-Ala ibn Sulaiman luzum ma la yalzamu lahallahu qawman idha jiitahum bisidq al-ahadith qalu kafar. So this fragment gives us a good example in linguistic and graphic form of this intertwining of Arabic and Hebrew, and their respective um, and and their um, respective scripts in a single medieval poetic manuscript, the methods employed in the texts include translation, code switching, and script switching or script is switched between Arabic and Hebrew script, and these all evidence of the of the interest these fragments hold for the study of bilingualism in the medieval Arabic world. This fragment holds poetry in Arabic and Hebrew script um, and in, in Arabic in both languages, in Arabic and also in Hebrew language as a translation of some Arabic verses. It contains a number of excerpts of Arabic poems belonging to iconic Arab poets of mm, the Middle Ages, the Fatimid poet Abu al-Ala al-Ma'arri, and the Abbasid poets, 
Abu Tamam, Abu Al-Atahiyya, and Ibrahim ibn Abbas al-Suli. It appears to be a pair of pages from a personal anthology. So the scribe switches script frequently into Arabic. Indeed, he begins with, the, uh, with a heading in Arabic script, um, uh, Al-Basmala, uh, which introduces the title and the authorship of the poem to uh, Abil Ala Al-Ma'arri, also written in, in Arabic script. Thereafter, the scribe employs Hebrew script for a poem itself. Surprisingly, however, he switches back into Arabic almost immediately in the first verse, Izajitahum. So before reverting again back to Hebrew. So to conclude, uh, I tried to uh, briefly highlight the diversity of, ver of uh, themes and genres of Arabic poetry read and written by Jews in medieval and early modern Egypt. The Geniza fragments showed poems mainly written in Hebrew script, that is in GJ Arabic, and few were written in Arabic script. The topics are varied, including secular and religious poetry, although love poetry is the dominant theme so far. The most important feature of the Cairo-Geniza Arabic poetry here is the evidence of the shared Jewish-Muslim heritage in terms of reading and writing Arabic poetry for many centuries. Thank you so much. Thank you guys very much for a wonderful talk. Um, I neglected to mention uh, in my introduction also that uh, I will be convening a workshop on, uh, with the title of Edab in uh, Hebrew and Judeo-Arabic over the next couple of days, tomorrow and the next day. It's um, not open to the public, but if you are interested in research in medieval Arabic uh, and or Hebrew literature, please do get in contact with me. You can either talk to me after the talk or uh, email someone from the uh, NYU Abu Dhabi Institute or the Humanities Research Fellowship Program and we'll, we'll register you. So we are now free to take questions. If anybody would like to uh, ask Ben or Mohammed anything, there are uh, microphones there and there. So just uh, go right on up and help yourself. Or if, um, uh, if you want to just flag someone, one of our uh, assistants down who has a microphone, then they will be able to, to help you out. Thank you. I just can't, uh, my name is Ghada Salim. I'm a journalist and a political writer. Uh, I can't wait to share my uh, small story with the Gneza, uh, which I've seen, I've seen myself, and I almost touched it. Um, I was writing uh, a story or um, a paper about the Jews of Egypt. And uh, I was trying to explain how unique um, the experience of Jews in Egypt um, in comparison with other places or other uh, countries, and how they were truly Egyptians, and how they were living um, a total uh, Egyptian life. And I think the, the fragments of the Gnesis is, is, is saying the same thing, which is how they are truly lived uh, totally uh, the Egyptian experience. 
Um, so uh, I used to go to uh, Benezra uh, synagogue. I went there several times, and um, I became a friend with Amshata. Uh, Amshata is the keeper of the uh, of the synagogue, and he used to ask me for bananas every time I go there. And <laughs> I used to bring him bananas, and uh, he used to explain a lot of things um, that I really didn't know about. Uh, the, the Jews and the culture and uh, the, how they used to live before the, the, the decision of uh, uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser to, to expel them from Egypt. And uh, uh, he explained a lot of things and how the, um, um, the, the, the alley, of the Jewish alley, that they, they were, it was mixed with the Christians and Muslims and the, they were trading and, and they, they, they fast together Ramadan and they, they celebrate a lot of uh, um, uh, religious festivals together. And uh, one day, maybe due to the beautiful, tasty bananas, he showed me the Ganesa. He took me to the hall and uh, I, I had a peek to, to the paper. And uh, he told me that this was what was left from the Ganesa, which is maybe 30% only. Uh, uh, but the 60% or the 70% were, were taken away. Uh, what I wanted to say is that, um, to me, the Geniza is part of the Egyptian heritage, and I, returning back the Geniza to Egypt is like returning the head of Nefertiti uh, to, uh, to Egypt, which is something very important, and with the full respect of uh, what Cambridge University did to the, uh, to the studying of the Geniza, uh, I wish that one day, I will see the Geniza totally, 100% of the fragments in Egypt. And uh, with the, um, with now with the technology of having, um, uh, having it digital and uh, stored, and so nothing will be missing. I mean, uh, from any university, all, a lot of universities can share this, but the original has to be back to, uh, to, uh, to Egypt. Thank you so much. I mean, I, absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm, my, my job rather relies on the manuscript staying in Cambridge. Um, but after I retire in about 10 years' time, um, no, I mean, that, I, I think, you know, increasingly, you know, and I think Britain perhaps more than many other countries is aware of its, you know, colonial heritage and the fact that, 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 it acquired a lot of these things, and as I said, you know, the Geniza is not by any means within the U within the University Library. You know, one of our more, um, you know, illegally or ethically challenged collections, of which we have a few. But on the other hand, there's no doubt that Schechter acquired it um, through the clever payment of bribes, and um, and the fact that you know there was a a, a British government then running Egypt. Um, which enabled him to, to uh, bring the manuscripts out of the country. In fairness to him, um, I mean, he was not the first person to take manuscripts out of the Geniza, and not the last, and that's why they're scattered all around the world now. Cambridge probably has two-thirds of the whole collection, but there are, there are you know, large numbers in Russia and America and France and Germany and everywhere else. Um, you know, I think at some point in the future, they, they, it might well be that they will go back because they have been digitized. You know, uh, everyone can now, you know, examine almost every single item from the Clarionisa by sitting at home. Um, 
And I think that the way that museums and libraries are moving nowadays, you know, even the British Museum is now making serious noises about returning things, um, that this may well happen in the future. And at a certain point, yeah, I mean, as, I mean, with the facsimiles that we produced, I've got to say, they're almost as good as the real thing. And, you know, if we could do that with the whole collection, you would then wonder whether there was any great need to retain the originals. Um, it must be said, though, that Egypt formally has never requested return of the items. Ah, so, right, perhaps that message didn't reach me. <laughs> um, <laughs> on the other hand, there have been more recent discoveries in Egypt from the, you know, from the cemetery, from the Basatin Cemetery and from the Mosseri family compound there, suggesting that there is still quite a lot of Geniza in Egypt. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we hope that, you know, the Egyptian government will do the same as, as we've done in Cambridge and elsewhere and digitise and make this available. So there's a little bit, you know, sort of there, there, there's some more work to do. Thank you. Thank you so much for this amazing uh, presentation. Um, I was just, uh, I, I have just one uh, simple question and a small comment. Um, uh, the question is that that letter sent from uh, Cohen, uh, uh, Gowan to North Africa for fundraising. Is it written? It's written actually in Hebrew script, but as far as I know, that at that the, during the Gaonic period, during the uh, during that period, uh, Jews used to write and read in Aramaic. So I wonder whether Geniza, uh, Geniza collection preserves also some Aramaic documents, although written in Hebrew scripts. Uh, 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 whether this letter actually was written, predates the Masoretic uh, uh, period where uh, the Hebrew script was stabilized or not, I don't know. Okay, so that so that letter from um, Nehemiah um, Gaon um, so dates about nine nine sixty. It's not dated because they tend not to date letters like that. That's written in Hebrew, and at that time, um, so the Jews of Iraq were Aramaic speaking, but but um, with you know, with with um, Muslim control, they became Arabicized and they spoke Arabic, and so um, Nehemiah Gaon was an Arabic speaker. But he wrote big formal letters in Hebrew um, when sending it to Jewish communities abroad. And there's probably a good reason why he did that. Because he could have written it in Arabic and sent it. Because he was, he was sending it to North Africa and Egypt and you know, they were Arabic speakers. But one is that he was a Jewish leader at the, seat of a, at the head of a Jewish center of learning in Baghdad. And, and you could trace its history back you know, uh, uh, by then, more than a thousand years. Um, and so there was a certain pride in using the Jewish language. But the second one was a more practical thing, which is that the Jews who would read it in North Africa, so it was addressed to the whole community, many of those letters, there was no opportunity for the whole Jewish community to come together and have a public reading, because you couldn't do that in the streets. That would be difficult and dangerous. In Egypt, it would be a problem with the Christian community around them. They wouldn't like to see lots of Jews gathered in the middle of Fustat. That caused riots, and we know, we know that happened. So the place they would read letters like that would be in the synagogue. 
And the only language that you're really allowed to use in the synagogue, I mean, you can use Aramaic, but the only language is Hebrew. And so that's probably why he's writing in Hebrew, because it was going to be read out into the, um, into the, um, the ears of all the community, as they say. He, they didn't write, as soon as they started speaking Arabic, they stopped using Aramaic, because Aramaic was a dead language. And they returned to using Hebrew more. So Jews were effectively bilingual, Arabic and Hebrew. They forgot most of their Aramaic. They only use it for getting married and getting divorced. Two documents that, and a few other things. But that's the, you know, it's the language of marriage and divorce. Yeah, so there are, so yeah, so there were, there were still, there were still Aramaic speaking communities. I mean, there still are Aramaic speaking communities and so on today. But, but no, I mean, these, the, the majority of Jews were, you know, I mean, most Jews in this period were Arabic speaking in the whole world. I mean, because only a small percentage lived in non-Arabic speaking areas. Um, there is also, uh, there is also maybe, um, there's, there was a reason why uh, Jewish community in the Muslim world used uh, this, what, what is called Judeo-Arabic. Um, actually, uh, and this reason uh, is about the, some religious uh, polemics. Uh, so some Jewish writers used to write things like about Islam that may not please other Muslims and then, the, so their actually, their way of writing it was using the Hebrew script. Uh, Maimonides, although he had very good relations, whether when he was in North Africa or in Egypt, uh, he actually used to do the same thing. So this is one of the reasons. So I wonder if there are some theological books there uh, in, in the Geniza or it's only literature. And, and one more uh, thing for Ahmed is the grammatical mistakes that I noticed. Uh, uh, th there, are, there are some grammatical mistakes that I, I understand why, because they are actually, they don't only translate the Arabic, uh, 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 they, don't they don't transliterate the Arabic original as original for, as a, as a written material, but as a composed material for singing. That's why you can see an aleph, which is go with ah, and you can see the wah with. So it's actually why it, is, it, 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 it retains that, uh, 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 that uh, composition for singing in it. And thank you so much. So thanks so much for your comment. Well, for the grammatical mistakes, well, actually, it's intended. I mean, our way of working on this uh, collection is to copy the uh, Hebrew equivalent of each uh, character. So yeah, we know we are aware of that. It's uh, uh, it's uh, it's our method just to reflect the original f fragments as they are. Um, and I'm not sure actually if they if of of the whole material they would like using to for citation uh, or just for personal use, like keeping them as anthologies of Arabic literature or not? This is a question we, we also have to uh, find an answer for during our project. Yeah, thank you. Many thanks for these uh, two informative talks. Uh, in the first talk, uh, 
uh, one of the slides uh, showed Dalalat al Hairin or Dalil al Hairin. I found that uh, there is no dots in on the Arabic uh, uh, letters. I don't know why. Uh, how, how, the, how can they they uh, tra translate uh, this uh, text into Hebrew? And then second question, uh, I think the link between love poetry uh, and uh, uh, Jewish people, there are a lot of uh, good musicians between uh, Jewish people. So they would like to use the love poetry in their songs. And uh, this is I, uh, from, from old history about in, in the beginning of the last century in Iraq. Most of the musicians were from Jewish community. Yeah, um, so, so with the, the guide for the perplexed, so that, that, was, that was Maimonides' copy in Hebrew script um, uh, in Judeo-Arabic. So, um, so when, when writing Arabic in Hebrew characters, you can, you've got sort of, there are different ways you could write it. You can use dots to indicate the different, um, to indicate the different consonants. But most people don't, because much as when they write Arabic in the Middle Ages, they don't use the dots to show the difference between the different consonants. Because yeah, you can work, you know, you know what you're expecting to read, and that squiggly line, you know, you can, you, you in those days they could read it much more easily than we can. Um, so Maimonides does occasionally use dots. He's unusual, actually. He will he'll mark a thern and a differently. But he's an exception. Most of them don't. They write straight Hebrew text, and you have to know Arabic well enough to know what he's saying. Um, as for love poetry, I mean, one thing about love poetry is it crosses all, yeah. all borders of faith and religion. Um, you know, love is the same in all. In all. So it's, it, 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 if, you, if you admire poetry, it's much easier to, to, um, to you know, um, take poet, a, a love poem from another culture than it is to say to take a, a religious poem where you might have theological issues that you have to, to yeah. change. So adding to this also in the collection we have portion of um, Egyptian Arabic songs, Mawals. So I think that should be covered in, in this area. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree with Ben. Love, love poetry is a general uh, universal theme, so yeah. Uh, what, uh, what the gentleman said about writing in Hebrew and Arabic, uh, uh, at the same time, I, it's like what we see nowadays that uh, the young generation, they are mixing Arabic and English at the same time, and they created a, a form of language, a new language, because when you, uh, when you think of a language and write with another, it comes this, uh, uh, this mixture. So I think it was not about hiding a, a text or hiding um, something that you uh, want to say or to mention. Uh, I think it came because they are thinking in Arabic, they are speaking in Arabic, and at the same time, perhaps, yeah. Yeah, uh, I thought that maybe it's, uh, it's like the younger generation now, they are mixing Arabic and English then. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's true. But I mean, one, one, main re one major reason why, why the Jewish community in the Middle Ages wrote Hebrew script was because um, they went to school to learn Hebrew. 
So they, 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 most Jews in the community were not formally taught Arabic at all. That was a language they spoke at home, and they picked it up. So um, even Moses Maimonides, you know, great scholar, he did learn Arabic, but he still prefers to write in Hebrew script because it's easier for him, because that's the first language that he learned to write, because every Jew has to be able to read the Torah. And the way they learned it at school was to copy the Torah. And um, this sets them apart from different religions. You know, so, so Jews are the most literate in the Middle Ages because all of them have to be able to read and write. But they read and write Hebrew. But they speak Arabic, so they put the two together and you get Judeo-Arabic. Um, we do know that some people couldn't read Arabic script. So we do have even quite important people writing letters to each other saying, I want to write to so-and-so. Do you know, does he know Arabic or do I have to write it in Hebrew characters? <laughs> um, so I think at the top, you know, the most prestigious language was Arabic in Arabic script. But most people couldn't read it. And even my Mondays, you know, preferred to write it in Hebrew. Yeah. That, yeah, that explains actually why we, uh, we see many, uh, like, various uh, books in different themes copied or translated in a way to uh, just to be like, to, to have access to a um, broader audience, like a readership. So if, you think, if we think about uh, the Hebrew script as a medium. So the best way to transfer the knowledge from Arabic to Jewish people who actually has no, or, or, or ha, who, who have no access to uh, Arabic script has been said. So the only way to transcribe them into Hebrew script so that everyone can, can read them and can benefit. That explains also why the Quran, for instance, was transcribed into Hebrew. So I mean, uh, I, I imagine if, if um, a Jewish scholar reads Quran in Arabic script, then he must be uh, at a very high uh, intellectual level, and uh, he doesn't need to to uh, to, ha to have the that Quran written in um, like Hebrew script to read it. It's not for him. It's just it meant for a public audience to uh, like more audience to get more. Um, uh, readers for, for the book. The exception is doctors. Doctors could all read Arabic really yeah. well. And that's why we have so many medical works written in Arabic script. Yeah. So their education, you know, because you couldn't, do you couldn't do medicine if you didn't know Arabic, because all medicine came in Arabic books. And so that's like why... nowadays English is the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why, you know, all, so many of the medical, and there's a huge amount of medical stuff in these, so much of it is in Arabic, Arabic script. And so you can't tell, was it owned by a Jew, was it owned by a Muslim, was it owned by a Christian? Maybe it was owned by all three at different times, you know, and it just went into the Geniza. Yeah, um, thank you so much for the interesting uh, lecture. It's really interesting. Uh, I have three questions, please. First of all, uh, do we have any Geniza other than the ones in Egypt? Like, what about the Genizas in Arabia? We have great Jewish population, or we had great Jewish population in Arabia. Do we have something that would trace back to them as something that we are still in the progress of finding? And second of all, what, the Geniza in Egypt, I tried, I, I have only one book in Arabic. It was from Egypt, Markaz al-Qawmi al-Targama. That was the only book that we have. Do, we, do you have any recommendations for other references to read uh, if, I'm, if I'm interested in this topic? And my last question, do we know what kind of uh, dominant Torah translation in Egypt at that time? Because I tried to do a research, I thought that it was Saadia Gaon, because it was the 
the one who really did the great job on translating the Torah from Hebrew to Arabic. But do we have from the Geniza any reference to other Arabic translations? Because this, in particular, my field of research. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I will leave the first question to uh, to Ben as he more. Okay. So I'll do the first one, and you answer the second. Yeah. One. Okay. Um, so so yeah, there, there were there were. There were some travelers at the about the time that Solomon Schechter was going to Egypt. Um, so um, Adler was another a, a, an English Jew who travelled around looking for Gnizot in other countries, and he went to, you know, he went to Damascus, he went to Aleppo, um, he went uh, all over the place, and he found nothing comparable. And it does appear that the reason we have the Kyrgyzah. Um, is just because of the circumstances that the Jewish community of Cairo has been there, and that synagogue has been in Jewish hands for its entire existence. It was destroyed by Al-Hakim. As soon as Al-Hakim disappeared, it was rebuilt. And, it, and although Fustat burnt down at one point, this, that part of the city wasn't actually burned. And so the synagogue always remained, and the city itself you know, never fell to destruction unlike Damascus, unlike Baghdad, unlike every great Jewish center that, you know, that was the Mongols and, and the various invasions destroyed all those, and the Genizot, that there must have been, there must have been comparable, you know, Genizot, um, have never survived. So there was only tiny, tiny collections have come from other centers. So they were already lost a long time ago. Um, I mean, that's not to say they won't be found, because you know, things are still sort of turning up. Um, and you know it's arguable that the Dead Sea Scrolls is a Geniza um, at Qumran, uh, but nothing of any of anywhere near has been found. We found sort of so in Iraq, I think during the American invasion, they 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 found um, uh, they found a Jewish um, Jewish items in the Interior Ministry that had come out of synagogues, but they were 16th century, 17th century, no, nowhere near as old because the city had been destroyed completely. Mm. Um, in the various invasions, and, and presumably, you know, the synagogues were lost at the same time. So it's, it's an absolute, you know, it's just, we're very fortunate to have this one. Yeah, for the, for the uh, Arabic scholars who are working, well, unfortunately, it's, I would say a few people in, in, our, in our Arab world uh, are working on, on the collection, but I can recommend uh, Dr. Muhammad Al-Hawari from Ma'in Shams University. I think he um, he wrote something uh, about the Geniza. Uh, other than that, you you might find something in academic, um, like more 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 academic um, journals in Ain Shams University and Cairo University. Um, in regard to the translations, uh, Sadia Sadia's translation was the, the you know the rock and roll translation of its day. I mean, all, you know, ninety percent of the the translations we have in the Geniza are Sadia. Um, but no, not, that's not the only one. We do have pre-Sayadianic translations. So we have some very early translations into Arabic. And you can tell that they're um, written before Saadia, because you know, Saadia's translation effectively sets the grammar of Judeo-Arabic. So when Saadia's translation sweeps the Jewish world, everybody copies Arabic that way. Um, but we do have pre-Sayadianic ones, which have the, you know, the, the, the early spelling of Jewish Arabic. But about priests, Saadia Gaon, were they translated also from the Hebrew or from the Septuagint? 
Well, that, that, that I would have to, I, I don't know for sure. But so Ronnie Vallant, for instance, has been working on that kind of thing. I mean, there, there, is a, there, is, there is almost certainly a great deal of influence from the Christian translations. But I can't say, you know, to what extent it's not my area. So maybe I will repeat myself. I just want to mention the Karait Geniza in, uh, in uh, Cairo. Uh, in the Karite Synagogue in Cairo, and uh, of course uh, the new uh, uh, the new Geniza in uh, Afghanistan that was uh, discovered a few years ago, a very very small one that uh, uh, includes especially um, uh, Persian uh, uh, Judeo-Persian manuscripts, and concerning uh, Judeo-Arabic translations. Uh, to the Torah, and of course, Obisadi Gaon was the first one uh, to translate uh, the Torah, but we also have uh, Karite translations uh, to, to the Torah. That's all, thanks. I think the only thing I'd say of that is, is just this, this tendency to call any collection a Geniza. You know, it's, it's, we don't know that the Afghan Geniza was a Geniza, and we, the Karite you know, library could be a library and not a Geniza. In your opinion? Yeah, well. <laughs> in the European in Geniza. The European in Geniza with the parchments of books. Yeah, again, that's, you know, that's a, that's a misuse Geniza, of the word yeah, Geniza. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in Haiba, I know there are also many um, hidden, um, not yet discovered. But yeah, yeah. No, they, we, you know, there is only one Geniza. All the others are, you Yeah, know. no doubt. Everybody <laughs> agrees. That's why we're here. Regarding the Quran, there were also Hebrew letters because they were not allowed to read the Quran. So it's in Hebrew letters because they wanted to know it because of the debates, but it's not in Arabic. And I, I'm, I heard what you said, Ben, about um, Maimonides preferring to write in Hebrew, you know. But I think it's also because he wanted people to understand what he wrote. So he wrote it in Hebrew, not in Arabic, because this was the common language. That's what everybody could read. Yeah, that's true. But, but um, I mean, a good proof of this is so he wrote for Muslims as well as for, 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 for Jews. So he wrote the, um, you know, we have his guide to sexual intercourse that he wrote on, for the nephew of Salah Hadin, and we have his original draft of that, and it's in Hebrew characters, and it was definitely intended for, a, for a, an Arabic speaker. Um, and so, yeah, so no, but it's, it's true, yes. He, I mean, he, he wouldn't have got a big audience if he'd written in Arabic script, but he clearly preferred to write Hebrew script, I think, yeah. Um, <clears throat> hi, this is Abanoub. Uh, I'm a journalist. Um, I, I really want to thank you for this amazing uh, session. Uh, I just came uh, two weeks ago from Egypt. I did a story uh, about the Jewish in Egypt. I did an interview with uh, Ms. Majda Harun. She's the head of the community there. And I was lucky to see the advertising in this uh, about this session on Instagram. And I asked myself, oh my god, this is because we talked about the Geneza or 
uh, it's an algorithm Facebook uh, listening to us. So I'm happy now uh, I'm here. And um, I need to ask a, a very important question. Is like, after all of these paper and these things, is there is like a general conclusion uh, about the Jewish in this period, how they live, how, how was the life there? Because it's very rare to find something like that. And also, the, the book that I, I bought uh, before uh, I came here, it was like uh, talking about the Jewish in the uh, uh, 20th century. Uh, it's uh, talking, uh, talking about how they live and everything like that, because we had in Egypt like a minister of finance, he was Jewish, and we have like actors and people, they are living like a, uh, in, in our society, but we don't know before that, like more information. Is there any general conclusion how they lived, what they do, uh, like the main major of things they do, like work or anything like that? That's that's a very interesting question. So I think when it comes to poetry, you are limited uh, of options to uh, understand like every detail about Jewish people, their daily life and their... And their um, uh, culture, but in in our project we um, we have a team of three uh, postdoc researchers who are working on the social history and the history of education and the anthropology of text. Um, and we're trying to study the Jewish community in medieval and pre-modern, like in Ottoman period, through uh, the material uh, we have. Uh, I'm very ambitious. <laughs> but um, uh, we are do doing our best luck. For conclusion, we definitely will publish two volumes, uh, edited volumes for with Arabic uh, transcription and English translation of, of the collection. We're also publishing um, at least 10 articles out of this. Uh, there is There will be also an online database. Um, and um, all of these will be open access, so anyone can download no, that's it. That's uh, and read yeah. without paying anything. No, not really. No, no, no. Um, Sorry, I have to uh, wrap things up. I've been told that we have reached the conclusion of the time that we have for this interesting discussion. Um, but as I mentioned, the um, my uh, workshop will be going on tomorrow, and so uh, Ben and Mohammed, several other. Uh, researchers who work on this field will be kicking around here, even if you just want to stop and, and uh, stop any of us and, and chat. And we'll be here for a few minutes after this. And uh, please join me in thanking them both very much for. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute